Hello and welcome to another World War Two podcast. I'm Angus Wallace. I have a great episode for you. We'll be discussing Case Red, the German attack on France post-Dunkirk. Often, when we talk about the battle for France, the history seems to stop at Dunkirk. In actual fact, the fighting carried on for a few more weeks. Uh, there were still 100,000 plus British troops in France post-Dunkirk, and Churchill was keen to keep the French fighting. Joining me is Robert Forsick. If you recall, last year we discussed Operation Sea Lion with Bob. Well, he's been beavering away this last year and has a new book out called Case Red, The Collapse of France. It's a real eye-opener. If you enjoy this episode, I can tell you now uh, there is more. Patrons of the show get access to extra bits of World War II chat, things that might have ended up on the cutting room floor because it was off-topic. If you have room in your life for more World War II chat, you can become a patron by making a small recurring donation by PayPal. For more information, go to www.podcast.com slash donate, or you can sign up to become a patron uh, via Patreon at patreon.com slash www2podcast. A dollar or a pound each month from enough of you guys goes a long way to helping me find the time and pay for putting the podcast together. And I thank those loyal listeners who already support the show. So that's www.podcast.com slash donate or patreon.com slash www2podcast. So Bob, thanks for joining me again. I wonder if the, if our starting point is actually the interwar years. And in your book, you tease out some fascinating uh, uh, threads on the inter interwar French policy on their military spending. Um, and it's not so much it's cutbacks, it's just it's spelt, spent elsewhere. Uh, I wonder if you could sort of elaborate on that. So every country in the world was affected by the Great Depression in the late 1920s and early 1930s, that it had an effect on every economy. And of course, it forced all countries to have military economies. Uh, so nobody was able to build the ideal military force in the 1930s. In the case of France, they were actually less affected than some of the other countries because uh, they decided not to devalue their currency. So that gave them an inflation problem. Their weapons became very expensive overnight. But on the other hand, they still had money. The main issue that usually comes up is spending on the Maginot Line, which was over a period of about six years was roughly five billion francs. In the late 1930s, Germany actually spent almost twice this amount on the Westfall. The French were not the only country investing heavily in border fortifications. Uh, the problem is because they were defeated, the Maginot Line becomes a symbol of all that was wrong on French defense spending, that they spent on the wrong priority, the wrong place. They should have spent more on tanks and anti-tank weapons and aircraft and things of that sort. There's no doubt that some of that is true. The Maginot Line, in terms of spending, accomplished what it was supposed to do. They wanted to keep the Germans from invading eastern France as they had in the Franco-Prussian War and the First World War. The Germans did not invade eastern France in the Second World War. Uh, even Hitler was very concerned about the Maginot Line. They had an exaggerated idea, thanks to pr French propaganda, which was very successful uh, in convincing the world that the Maginot Line was much, much stronger than it actually was. The real priority issues for the French were not fortifications. The Maginot Line made sense to a certain extent. 
The problem is, first of all, they went rather cheap on it. They should have invested more in it and made it longer, stronger, more effective. They basically built an economy size Maginot line. The real issue came in an aircraft and the Navy. The French Navy was really unnecessary to deter Germany. Uh, Germany was not in any way deterred by new French battleships or cruisers. And the French went on a large naval building spree in the 1930s to keep up with Mussolini's Navy. But it invested far more money in that and new ships and uh, a naval base, Mirz el-Kabir in North Africa, than they invested in the Maginot Line. And it was of no value when war actually came. And, of course, the personnel and steel that went into building up the French Navy took away from steel and personnel that could be used for the French Army. The French basically had two armies uh, in the 1930s. The Metropolitan Army made up of draftees, conscripts, not particularly high quality. It was designed to be fleshed out in the event of wartime, but in peacetime it was kept to uh, a reduced rate of uh, equipment and personnel. The real French army was overseas, the colonial army. These units were full strength, officered by experienced uh, men, led by experienced NCOs. The French colonial army during the interwar period actually fought a lot and fought well. It fought in Syria, putting down a major rebellion in North Africa with the the Rif War. And at the beginning of the Second World War, the French leaned very heavily on their colonial regulars. These formed the hard kernel of their army, and it was brought back to metropolitan France to build up, buttress, and train the metropolitan force, which was 90% conscript. The British had the same situation. They had a small a small regular army that had mostly been deployed overseas. These had to be brought back to England to help train the draftees and the conscripts. But the French had to prepare for an all-out conflict with Germany that they had to rely on with their own resources. Uh, they hoped to get help from the, from the British, the Belgians, the Dutch, the Poles, the Czechs. Um, very little of this actually panned out when war actually came. But the, prior to the war, the hope was that all these other allies would add in significant forces so that the French would not have to bear the entire burden of a ground war with Germany on their own. They were not prepared, based on the expenditures they made before the war, to bear that burden by themselves. My book, Case Red, points out that when that the uh, the French military had not prepared to fight uh, fully a war that was with their primarily their own resources. They had hoped too much for a coalition war effort and more time to build up their own resources. The normal theory is that French doctrine was flawed. In fact, the French doctrine that was used in 1940 was not unlike the Allied doctrine that was used in Normandy in 1944. Methodical battle, as the French called it, was about coordinating armor, artillery, infantry, air support to achieve an effect on the battlefield to overwhelm an enemy. The same thing was done in Normandy in 1944. What the French were attempting to do in 1940 on the defense was was not a flawed doctrine. The real problem was they did not have enough equipment and their forces uh, came up short. We see this particularly uh, after Dunkirk. Of course, over 200,000 British troops were evacuated from Dunkirk. A lot of people forget that over 100,000 French troops were evacuated from Dunkirk. They were landed mostly at Cherbourg, and 
The French army quickly tried to rebuild these units. 100,000 troops was more than five divisions. It would have been very handy in the Battle of France. Unfortunately, they had no equipment to give them. In the three weeks remaining to the French Third Republic, they were only able to re-equip a very small percentage of these troops, a few thousand, just in time for the final battles. Uh, so the real problem here in 1940 for the French was a shortage of equipment. They had not prepared for an all-out ground effort from the beginning, and they really had hoped that they could uh, increase production and, and not have to face a real test like this until 1941 or 42. Now, the other countries were in the same situation. The British Army could not be re-equipped after Dunkirk for nearly a year, and that included Lend-Lee's help from the United States as well. And the Germans, of course, whenever they suffered material losses in the first year of the war, first couple of years of the war, uh, they came up short as well. And the Germans relied very heavily on captured equipment because they simply could not produce enough tanks, guns, rifles, machine guns, trucks to equip the Wehrmacht. When they invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, parts of the German army were using captured British Bren gun carriers and uh, Lloyd Carden trucks and French Renault trucks because they simply did not have enough equipment to outfit their army. So how had the Polish campaign affected uh, affected them prior to the uh, Battle of France? Because that, that, they must have suffered some losses. I mean, it's all... It, you know, the general, the general idea is that they romped across Poland. They must have suffered losses. Were they made good? Did that impact upon their planned invasion of France? Well, it's interesting you ask that. That's actually my next book project is Case White in the invasion of Poland. German losses in Poland, particularly in terms of tanks, they lost about a, one quarter of their tanks were damaged or, or destroyed, which was quite a lot. And they had to make do with uh, hundreds of Czech uh, made tanks uh, for the invasion of France. Um, rather ironically, it was thanks to the French help to the Czech government during the 1930s that there were all these Czech tanks existed. The French, of course, had tried to build up France and Poland as allies in the east. They provided them technical assistance and helped them build up their own arms industries. This is, I think, part of the law of unintended consequences that uh, the French never anticipated that the tanks they helped the French, the Czechs make would be used against them someday. It um, <laughs> did not work out in their favor. But yet, uh, German losses were significant, but the German military was built for short-term conflicts. And even though they suffered significant losses in Poland and later in France, I mean, the, the Luftwaffe lost well over a thousand aircraft during the French campaign, which hurt them during the Battle of Britain. Uh, they were... A uh, short, roughly 800 air crew that probably would have made a difference during the Battle of Britain if they had survived. The the Wehrmacht was designed for short-term campaigns, hit hard, take the losses, win quick, and then spend a few months repairing and replacing casualties and lost equipment. That worked well up until 1941 in Russia because the campaign there never ended. So they were never able to catch their breath, which they had relied upon in the early campaigns was that nothing lasted past the point that they could continue. Uh, so, I mean, that was a, a game changer for them. And the French in 1940 lasted six weeks, which was the longest that anybody went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Germans up until the Soviets. Essentially, every military started the Second World War shorthanded of equipment. Most militaries are in much the same situation today. They're not geared for long-term protracted warfare. That takes... 
years of building up stockpiles before a country really is in a position to fight for more than a few weeks, and that that continues today. It's a, a huge cost that a huge cost that people want stomach. Taxpayers generally don't want to buy stockpiles of artillery ammunition <laughs> when they don't need them. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I wondered if the British and the French were really, you know, at the start of the war, they were just trying to get the numbers up get as many people deployed as possible. So they're sort of very much thinking of the First World War and then thinking, the, as you say, the kit will follow along afterwards. Yes, unfortunately, the British did this even more. The um, <clears throat> the Secretary of War at, at the time, Corbalicia, he decided that he wanted to ship three of the Territorial Army TA divisions over to France during the winter of 1939-1940 to train over there. They went to France essentially just with rifles, no other equipment. They had very few vehicles either. No anti-tank guns, no anti-aircraft guns, very little equipment. Most of these personnel had not been trained beyond very basic level of training. And once in France, they were assigned mostly line of communication duties, which meant digging ditches and laying barbed wire and things of that sort. <clears throat> not very useful for training for modern warfare. And these three TA divisions were really the only three formations that survived the demise of the original BEF in Belgium. They were the ones behind back down by the Somme River that, that were still intact. Uh, of course, they had almost no capability. And uh, at the last moment to try and prevent the Germans from reaching the English Channel, the decision was made by Lord Gott to try and position them sort of as blocking forces in the way, which did not block Guderian for more than a about 24 hours, and unfortunately led to all two of the three divisions being demolished uh, with heavy casualties. In fact, a large portion of the BEF casualties in uh, 1940 came from these three units rather than the regular units, which most of which made it off the beaches in Dunkirk back to England uh, with acceptable levels of casualties. But the three TA divisions were badly beaten up. One of the Brigadier Generals, I forget his name, but one of the Brigadier Generals from one of the TA divisions uh, when his unit was overrun on, I think it was 20 May, just uh, at the time of the Battle of Abbeville, he uh, managed, he was separated from his troops and uh, he managed to evade and escape, but he never made it back to British lines. And he spent the rest of the war until 1944 in France, disguised, hiding. Incredible, isn't it, these stories of these, of these uh Yes, I'd never heard about that individual before, but I thought that was pretty amusing to hear about a British general hiding in France with the resistance for four years until he was rescued. As you said, the, the BF sort of is bypassed, and you, you have the t these TA units as the backstop. I wonder if the you know, the early successes, uh, when the when the with the breakthrough happening, is 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 down to the, the better units being up with the BAF. Uh, 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 and they're actually they're hitting low grade uh, French units, which doesn't you know we don't necessarily hear about when they're uh, romping. When we're only making these initial breakthroughs uh, crossing crossing the Meuse. Well, of course, the two French divisions, Fifty uh, Fifth uh, Infantry Division, was one of the most prominent. Its collapse. So where the Germans chose to make their main effort in 1940 was at the was at Sedan, where the French by combination of mistakes, bad luck, and error had placed two of their least capable units, not expecting real trouble here. And uh, their best French units were in Belgium with the BEF. So you had the very best German units supported by 
virtually the bulk of the Luftwaffe. I think at Sedan, when they made their breakthrough, there was something like 1,000 sorties on the first day of the attack uh, in that sector. So, I mean, crushing level of air support, artillery support. Not unexpectedly, these two reserve divisions broke and fell apart, leading to the a tactical defeat, leading to a, a national-level catastrophe. And that image of those retreating French units has sort of shaped the general perception of the French army in 1940 that they fell apart quickly and did not fight well. The problem is that doesn't fit the rest of the campaign. The French army in Belgium alongside the British fought very well. At the Battle of Gembleau uh, Gap in, in, in uh, Belgium, the French armored cavalry did exactly what they were expected to do. They moved rapidly into Belgium. They fought a delaying action against two panzer divisions and uh, helped hold the line along the Dial River until the BEF and the French First Army showed up. They did exactly what they were expected to do. And that defensive line was solid until, of course, it was being outflanked by the German move through the Ardennes and at Sedan. And then in Case Red, I detail all the fighting that happened in, in France in June 1940, where the initial German attacks, 5, 6 June 1940, along the, the Aisne River and the Somme River were actually defeated by the French defenses. By that point, the Germans had lost all surprise. There was no fancy maneuvers through the, you know, the, through the Ardennes at that point. Uh, it was a frontal attack. And by this point in the campaign, the, uh, there were still a hundred thousand British troops in France after Dunkirk, which is a major point I try and make, particularly for British audiences that the campaign was not over. <laughs> there were, Still 100,000 troops. The RAF still had plenty of squadrons in France. The the fighting continued after Dunkirk. Uh, unfortunately, uh, between a combination of Hollywood and mythology, Dunkirk becomes full stop. Battle is over. You know, as Churchill said, the Battle of France is over and, and you know, the Battle of Britain is about to begin. It sounds great, but that's not actually what happened. And what happened is Dunkirk was the end of the campaign in Belgium. The invasion of France was about to begin. And that continued for, you know, the rest of June. And uh, the French put up a, a hard fight and inflicted heavier losses than they actually inflicted earlier in the campaign. Uh, like I say, the Germans had lost the element of surprise. The Germans had a larger numerical advantage at that point. But on the other hand, uh, it was essentially frontal attacks and the French had some time to get ready. Uh, in while the uh, Germans were overrunning Belgium and Dunkirk, the French army was digging in behind rivers. In the 1930s, the French leadership understood what it took to stop a panzer-type uh, attack that the Germans would launch, which was a defense in depth with anti-tank guns, artillery, all-around defense. Uh, the British army would employ these kind of tactics later in the desert at Gazala and places like that in El Alamein with the boxes they built out in the desert, which proved very tough for Rommel's armor to deal with. The French understood this in 1940, but there's a difference between understanding and actually executing. Uh, von Clausewitz said in his theory of war that everything in war is actually easy. It's doing it that's hard. <laughs> there's nothing in war that's rocket science except, I guess, rocket science. But the most of the things, stopping tanks, You, the French knew you put anti-tank mines in the ground, you put obstacles out there and cover them with anti-tank guns and automatic weapons, you'll stop the enemy. It, it's just the problem was it was not so easy to actually do on the fly, you know, in June 1940, and they ran out of material. But, 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 you know, I get the feeling, you know, around Dunkirk, the Allies have lost, seem to seemingly have lost the initiative, but there is sort of a, 
you know, sort of alluded to a, a pause here as they as is it, this is where they switch from case yellow to case red, which is the uh, uh, second half of the of the Battle of of, of France. Was, was there anything they could have done to sort of um, regain the initiative or, 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 or contain the breakthrough? The Battle of Abbeville was probably the make or break point there. So while Dunkirk was the Dunkirk perimeter was being squeezed, there were minimal Allied forces on the Somme defending the Somme River. But the uh, there was uh, ad hoc British formation known as the Bowman Division, which does not get talked about too much. The First Armored Division was also showing up in France as well, and the French had made, managed to get a few of their their better colonial divisions to the Somme River and eventually de Gaulle's 4th Armored Division. So you had uh, a stream of Allied reinforcements going to the sector, which at the time was only lightly held by a few German divisions. In particular, I, I make a big point about talking about this one Bavarian division, the 57th Infantry Division from Bavaria Reservists. They were given the mission. After Guderian had taken Abbeville, the tanks turned away from southward and turned north to go finish off the, the Dunkirk perimeter leaving the, the, the bridgeheads they had gained over the Somme held by German reservists. And this was probably a brief opportunity at the end of May and early June 1940 for the Allies to destroy uh, a sizable German force, maybe two divisions. Uh, they tried. The, in the Battle of Abbeville, you see five Allied attacks occurring over a period of about six days involving the British 1st Armored Division, the 51st Highland Division, uh, that was retrieved from the Saar Front, de Gaulle's 4th Armored Division, and several other French divisions. And they did achieve some success against this German Reserve Division. They, I don't want to say they came close to recapturing Abbeville, but they reduced the German bridgehead over the Somme in that sector and inflicted considerable losses. The problem was they were not committing the resources they needed, for example, the air support that they needed, to really achieve a decisive result. The French did not commit heavy artillery to the sector, which is something they desperately needed. I mean, the French artillery in World War II was actually quite good because it was the same artillery that had helped win on the Western Front in 1918, and artillery doesn't change as much as tanks. Uh, the French still had plenty of heavy artillery, but it, it generally wasn't in the right place at the right time. Uh, so they ended up doing these attacks piecemeal over a period of days that instead of uh, achieving a really decisive result, what they achieved was tactical successes, but not leading to a, a real win. If the Allies had been able to win at Abbeville and crush a few German divisions, I think this would have given Hitler a bit of a pause. He was very concerned during the whole battle that the Allies were going to pull something, an ace out of their sleeve. And he was very concerned that there were, the Allies had more forces than they actually had. He, he was very, always very paranoid about something unexpected happening. I mean, he just pulled the unexpected on the Allies with the move through the Ardennes, and he sort of expected that they were going to do something to him unexpected. So I think an unexpected Allied victory would have been helpful. I don't think it would have changed the actual result of the campaign, but it would have slowed the Germans down a little bit and given the Allies a little bit more chance to, to organize their defenses. However, aside from the French shortage of equipment, the fact is that the, the RAF failed to commit the resources, even to the British sector that still remain, to ensure air superiority over the British divisions that were still in France. A lot of this is due to, to Dowding's insistence with Churchill that the 
a large part of the RAF be, and particularly all the Spitfires be kept back in England, you know, to prevent German air raids, which were not occurring at this point. And Doubting, of course, had an important point. He understood that after France fell, that Britain was next. But the Luftwaffe was losing aircraft by the dozens over France every day. And every every Luftwaffe aircraft shot down over France was one less over Kent or Sussex. So there was a trade-off going on here that the RAF was saving its best aircraft for later. Uh, but, of course, it was missing the opportunity to inflict and potentially delay the Battle of Britain later into the year. As it was, the Germans could not, the Luftwaffe could not mount their first attacks on England until serious attacks until early August. Uh, it took them <clears throat> roughly six weeks to replace and repair aircraft and replace their immediate losses and prepare for, for Eagle Day over England in August, early August 1940. Heavier losses in France, of course, would have reduced the number of Spitfires available, perhaps, but on the other hand, it would have also reduced the number of Luftwaffe aircraft coming over the channel. Uh, so there's a there's a trade-off going on here, and it's I understand it's easy for post-war historians like myself to say, well, they could have done this, they could have done that. Yes, well, the, the French were pleading for Spitfires throughout the entire campaign, and it's interesting, the only Spitfires that ever flew over France during the 1940 campaign were at Dunkirk to support the evacuation. And when Churchill flew to Paris, <laughs> he was escorted uh, one time by by uh, Spitfires. Uh, but the the doubting in the RAF refused to allow, you know, the the best aircraft to be committed. And the French were outnumbered both numerically in the air and also they had banked on the army being the most important, so they had better tanks than the British, but the British had better fighters than the French. This also begs the question, imagine if the British and French had actually cooperated on sharing military technology five years before the war actually began. The British could have benefited from better French technology in terms of riveted armor for their tanks, welded armor for their tanks, better anti-tank guns. On the other hand, uh, the French aircraft industry definitely would have liked the Merlin engine. Just as the war was beginning, the uh, Rolls-Royce uh, made an offer to the French to receive 150 Rolls-Royce engines to re-equip some of their new fighters. Basically, this was kind of a little bit, little late, too late to make a difference. And I believe a small number were actually license built in France just before the collapse. But one can imagine what if the French had actually re-equipped some of their fighters with Merlin engines. I mean, mm. that would have. Yeah, yeah. If you can't send Spitfires, at least send the engines. Yeah. You know. There's another thing, I guess, which both sides. I was just reading that both sides probably never knew was that the the, uh, the British were outproducing the Germans by enormous amounts when it came to replacing aircraft. Um, and with that in mind, that you know, if 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 they knew that, they might have been less more willing, I suppose, to send to send Spitfires. But you know, it's what you don't know that's the important thing at the time, isn't it? I think early on, aside from Churchill, I think he was one of the few in the British government or military who believed the French could hang on because of you know his impressions from the First World War. But I think a large part of the British senior military leadership and some of the political leadership did not believe that the French were in it to win it and uh, expected them to throw in the towel and were refused to commit uh, totally to the campaign in France because they didn't expect it to, to turn out well. And I think that's certainly true of Alan Brooke. And I think that even the RAF was um, 
not fully convinced, so they were unwilling to really commit to to a European war in a full sense. Uh, so I think that was part of the problem. Well, Brooks seems very disparaging. From the French point of view, the big shocker, recall that in the First World War in 1980, 1918, that Britain had something like 2,000 aircraft on the Western Front and almost a million troops. So in 1939, 1940, the French expected something similar. And instead, when they saw 10 divisions show up, they said, you've got to be kidding. And the British First Armored Division showed up and most of the uh, the tanks were not equipped. They were equipped with, you know, the Mark VI was equipped with just a machine gun. And they said, you've got to be kidding. Uh, don't you have anything better than this? And, and uh, you know, Britain had emphasized air power and they had invested in, in excellent fighters and a large bomber force. What the French saw was the fighters were kept in the best fighters were kept in England, and the bombers, for some reason, under Chamberlain, were not bombing Germany. So it looked like Britain's trump cards were being held back from the conflict. Now, when Churchill came in, of course, this changed a little bit, but kind of too late to to influence the situation much in France and. They had not prepared to fight. They were hoping it was going to be like 1918 again, that at least England up front would contribute a large force in the air and on the ground. And eventually the United States and other countries would join it as well. So they'd be a coalition effort. They did not get that in 1940, and they weren't ready to bear it on their own uh, in terms of the numbers. Uh, I point out repeatedly in the book, it's not I'm not the only historian to do this, but the French soldiers fought very well in 1940, particularly after the initial shocks. They they suffered high casualty rates. Many units fought very bravely and suffered heavy casualties. The junior officers, uh, there were plenty of them that showed great panache and, and heroism and elan on the battlefield. There was not a shortage of that. The problem is they didn't have the equipment. Uh, the circumstances they were put into were essentially a no-win situation, not of their creating. And I think they did as well as pretty much any of the other armies did up to about 1942 against the Germans, which is uh, not very well at all. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a testament to really actually, actually to the Germans at that because uh, their casualties were enormous, but they somehow kept going in the face of it. Um, it, it I, I got the feeling it was much more attritional. Uh, was the Battle of France than one might be led to expect. You know, the, the general idea is they were outflanked and, and uh, whipped in that way. And I, I, I got the feeling they actually, in many respects, the Germans got got quite a pasting, if you, if you look at the casualty figures. They took some excessive losses. I, I like to point out that the um, their top fight, uh, fighter pilot, which was Werner Mulders, was shot down and captured. Now, you may recall that Churchill, when he kept flying back to France, kept asking the French, pressing them, that uh, he wanted these 400 captured German flyers turned over to the British. That never actually occurred. Those captured flyers included Werner Mulders and uh, another one of the top Luftwaffe bomber pilots, both of, both of whom were eventually released, recycled, and then used in the Battle of Britain against Britain. Um, so, again, the, the French had managed to shoot down some quality individuals and inflict some serious losses, which you know could have set the German war effort back. The Germans had the ability to recover from from short-term losses. I mean, even in 1944, it wasn't Montgomery, but it was one of the British generals said that the uh, the Germans have an annoying ability 
to uh, conjure up troops even when they seem to have none left. <laughs> they, 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 they always had this ability somehow like in 1944 when the British Army was rolling across Belgium and approaching the Dutch border and it seemed like there was nothing left. And all of a sudden in a matter of just days, there's divisions in front of them. Where'd they come from? Yeah, they, and uh, you read about some of these ad hoc German formations that were just thrown together. Um, I don't think any other army had the ability in the Second World War to to just throw collections of people together. And a lot of times these weren't even just army people. A lot of times they were Luftwaffe ground personnel, Navy personnel. Some of them weren't even German. I mean, these were included POWs from the Soviet Union, uh, the so-called Osttruppen, Eastern troops, people from all over. They would just throw them together into a combat force and uh, achieve fairly remarkable results against, you know, well-led Allied units. Well, well, I wondered if you know, the, the the French morale sort of hadn't collapsed because they kind of had this idea that you know, certainly, you know, you, you get the Battle of the Marne in 1914 and the Germans have stopped you from getting too close to Paris. There's Operation Michael in 1918 during the First World War, they stopped. And I wondered if, uh, you know, basically the Allies kind of believed that the Germans must at some point run out of steam in 1940 like they did in the First World War. But as you say, they had somehow an inability to keep going. Well, there's no doubt um, the French, particularly Vagon, was counting on that. But the problem is he didn't do what he needed to do to make that happen. So, for example, like you mentioned, Michael in 1918. Well, in 1918, they defended Paris. <laughs> they they put up stiff resistance on the on the uh, the last 40 kilometers to Paris, and uh, same in 1914. But they did not do that in 1940. So they had built this ad hoc defense line called the Chavanot line, which is not even mentioned in most World War II histories. But during the winter, during the phony war, they had built some defenses uh, outside of Paris and uh, by an engineer named Chavanot. And uh, Vagon initially said, we're going to defend Paris. And they assigned what divisions they had left to hold the Chavanot line. And they actually did a pretty good job for, for a couple days. The problem was on his own initiative, without consulting the French political leadership, he ordered Paris evacuated, and he did it in a very underhanded sort of way where not everybody was notified. And it's clear that Vagon was doing this to uh, spare civilian casualties in the capital and everything uh, of that sort. But if the Germans had had to fight for Paris, and that's another thing, if the French had mounted a real defense of Paris, there's no doubt in my mind that this would have taken at least two weeks for the Germans to deal with. I mean, Warsaw was fully surrounded by the Germans in 1939. It took them more than two weeks to eliminate the Polish forces in Warsaw. And I believe that if the French had made an effort to defend war, uh, Paris with with similar number of forces, at least five or six divisions, this, there's no way the Germans could have dealt with that in less than a couple of weeks, which would have bought some additional time. Uh, the result, of course, would have been destruction in Paris. Uh, of course, keeping in mind that by 1944, Hitler was ordering the entire city leveled. Uh, it's a relative term. What you save today might be destroyed by the invader tomorrow. It's usually best for countries to defend their capital, not just to hand it over to invaders. 
Well, I thought they uh, when Wei Gong declares it, you know, an open open city and it's not going to be defended, he, he loses his fallback position, his rallying point. You know, it had been a, a symbol for the nation in you know eighteen seventy, nineteen fourteen, again in nineteen eighteen, and sort of from that point, it, it, it almost appears that the. Uh, the upper echelons of the French military are, 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 are almost feel defeated rather than necessarily the man on the ground or even the politicians. Yeah, oh, there's no doubt that uh, at that point it, there's a deflation of morale and, and um, there's a realization that we're losing the capital and we didn't even fight for it. And most people think of, you know, in their mind, they picture panzers, you know, streaming into Paris and everything. The German actual occupation of Paris was somewhat pathetic. Uh, I didn't use any – I only used one picture of the actual invasion force, but uh, no tanks were involved and most of the troops walked in on foot and uh, a lot of the German horses had already died. And, of course, the Germans still used over a million horses in their army to pull equipment, carts, artillery. Uh, they had requisitioned French donkeys at this point and uh, some rather pathetic-looking animals. And you look at some of these pictures of German – columns coming in with supply wagons being pulled by French, you know, donkeys that don't look very, uh, pretty scrawny looking. And you realize this is, uh, it's not the picture of the mighty German, you know, Wehrmacht that you have in your mind. It's, uh, another thing I find rather bizarre. I watched some of the, uh, it's amazing that French civilians were actually on the street watching the Germans move in. I, I found that rather peculiar. Um, in, uh, women and, Walking by, uh, you would think most people would be behind be behind doors at that point, <laughs> rather than walking on the Champs Elysees, Champs Elysees, watching them come down the street. But uh, yeah, well, I guess they, it's, it's possibly a sign of the uh, the lack of threat that they felt from their own side, if that makes sense. From the from a French defensive point of view, they must have felt that you know no one was going to shoot at the Germans, so they couldn't get any cross caught in any crossfire. The, the the French government does want to carry on. The Prime Minister, Renard, you know, his idea is to carry on fighting from North Africa and the colonies. So what happened to that plan? Why was why was that quashed? In essence, there was a military coup <laughs> aided by Pétain and Végan and individuals such as uh, Laval, who became the Vichy leader later on. But... Reynaud wanted to carry on. Most of the, a good chunk of the French cabinet and some of the military wanted to carry on as well. Uh, the idea being that they would fall back to perhaps Brittany, which, and make a stand there with what was left of the second BEF. Churchill was all in favor of that idea. Uh, he said, we'll provide what support we can to defend Brittany. Was that a good idea? Not really. I don't think a stand could have been made in Brittany for more than a, a few days, a week at most. But, that idea was being toyed with. The real fallback plan was to fall back to Algeria and Morocco and continue the war from there. And Reynaud and his and most of his uh, ministers at the start believed that was what was going to happen. The problem was every time Reynaud told Vacon, "Okay, you need to get start taking action to make this happen," Vacon uh, always came up with reasons why it couldn't happen and basically never took a lifted a finger. To make it happen, the uh, there are a variety of reasons to this. One, Vagon was very conscious of the fact that an armistice was coming in metropolitan France. He was the commander on the spot. He knew that he was most likely the one that was going to have to stay behind and sign the armistice with the Germans. 
the French commander in North Africa was likely to become the new commander-in-chief of the French army. And this individual was actually uh, in favor of continuing the war as well. And Reynaud was in discussion with him. Reynaud connived with Pétain, Laval, and others to undermine Reynaud by basically adopting a do-nothing attitude when it came to continuing the war in North Africa. They just kept saying, this is can't be done, it won't happen, we won't do anything. Reynaud should have, at that point, taken the necessary step to fire Vagon. He did not. That was his fatal error. In a democracy, of course, you're in a crisis. Uh, firing your military leader at a point like that seems bad. Uh, and most leaders would, would step back from that, that point. Um, if you recall, Churchill got rid of Ironside, uh, but he kind of waited till a quiet moment in 1940. And Ironside did not inspire awe in Churchill, and he wanted to get rid of him. But he, he, he managed to pick a quiet moment and usher him out. And I, I can't remember what command he was kicked upstairs to, but I think he was uh, given some honorific position where he could sit out the war and not do any more damage. But uh, Vagon could have been the same thing. They they could have elevated him to Generalissimo of the Allied armies or something like that, but he needed to go and a firebrand who would actually uh, continue the war and, and provide the military leadership is what was missing. And de Gaulle was simply too junior to fill that role. And uh, they needed a four-star general level officer who could step up and they did not have it. And the political leadership was basically undermined by essentially a palace coup that um, robbed them of their, their ability to use their military at, at the time. So the military essentially decided – started making decisions for itself. Yeah, and the, those those high upper echelon members then uh, of the military then all got jobs, no doubt, in the Vichy – in the replacement Vichy government. Yes, they did. Vagon became defense minister. Peyton became the head. In fact – I point out that even while third, the, the Third Republic was still breathing, that Patan was already handing out jobs that would be filled in Vichy to, to members of the, you know, you're going to get this, you're going to get this. And the old government isn't even dead yet. And they're, they're you know, they're, he's already giving out positions. It's treason, which is why he was tried for treason after the war. The French could not bring themselves to, you know, carry out a sentence against him. But everybody knew that Vagon and Patan, that it was treason in, in, Peyton's case, I think it was uh, partly his advanced age and his kind of sour outlook on life, but he he definitely was not the Peyton of 1918, and um, he had changed there. Uh, I think that the, I guess something else I wanted to get across here, I'm trying to recall, was uh, kind of the whole end of the war period. Of course, Churchill was trying to keep the French in, and, and Churchill was being undermined as well uh, because Brooke did not follow instructions. Burke was told, proceed to France, assume command of the second BEF, assist the French as much as you can, hold on as long as you can. If all else fails, save as much British equipment as you can. He did none of that. And he willfully did none of that. He was appointed as head of the second BEF, I believe on 2 June, just before the fall of Dunkirk. Uh, you recall he was evacuated from Dunkirk, recycled, and he was supposed to go back across the channel. I think he actually got to France on 13 June. He spent 11 days in in England before turning around, which was rather leisurely to say he'd been ordered by the cabinet to proceed directly to France, to assume. So for 11 critical days, the troops of the 2nd BEF had no commander. 
that caused a lot of problems. So you had junior officers uh, like Carslake, General Brigadier General Carslake, and a couple Bowman and a couple of the others who were making decisions for themselves, but they were essentially brigadiers. Yeah, they were not. They were not. Did not have the authority to deal with uh, the French military. So the the second BEF was was leadership from the beginning. When Brooke did show up, he, he refused to cooperate with the French and instead cooked up a story that was he gave to Churchill in the cabinet that the French are quitting, they're, 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 the war is over, you know, I'm heading home and, you know, all is over. That was actually not com- completely incorrect. Churchill kept telling him, stay in as long as you can and at least fight a rearguard action so, you know, there's some honor for British troops instead of just running to the ports. And he didn't do any of that. And uh, consequently, a great deal of material was lost. The uh, The greatest loss of life for British force in the campaign was the sinking of the Lancastria, which I think in part is is uh, is Brooks' fault. He he threw together this evacuation in a period of about seventy two hours. Even the Dunkirk evacuation, uh, Operation Dynamo, had a, had a little bit more planning than what Brooke did. Brooke just said, "We're running for the ports. Let's head for the nearest vessels we can get on." And so you ended up with British. Large ships like the Lancaster with uh, little or no air support overhead, unlike Dunkirk, which are getting bombed by the, the Luftwaffe. And you end up with the death toll today is not known on Lancaster. It's at least 3,500. It's potentially as high as 4,000. It was the largest British loss of life in the campaign. A friend of mine's father was, uh, grandfather was plucked off the, uh, from the, from the uh, wreckage of the, Grand, of the Lancaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they saved about 1,500. Uh, in fact, French destroyers participated in saving British survivors in the water, who then got on the next British ship and sailed home. And uh, I thought it was interesting that some of the local commanders, I mean, they were even being told to destroy all their equipment on the docks, uh, including brand new trucks, lorries, artillery pieces. One local lieutenant colonel, I believe, uh, disobeyed orders and took his artillery. Uh, they took the time to load the artillery these were some of the few artillery pieces in England, modern art, uh, 25 pounders, some of the few 25 pounders in England right after the fall of France in preparation for, you know, Operation Sea Lion was they were saved by the action of one junior officer who disobeyed orders from senior. But uh, I make the point kind of tying in with my Sea Lion book that uh, the British Army uh, broke made sure that the British Army lost a lot of equipment in France that would have been come in very handy for rebuilding the BEF in England. But it was hastily abandoned, and uh, not to mention millions of uh, gallons of petrol, which were later used by the Germans in their next campaign. It was a it was a hasty and ridiculous retreat because I believe he emotionally rejected the mission. He did not want to do it. He did not want to get stuck with defeat, and um, it was time to exit and uh, Churchill's entreaties and orders to him to continue to mount some kind of rearguard action. He just simply ignored and got away with it. It's a curious mixed message the British are sending when you've got the political leadership saying they're going to you know, attempt to back them to the hills. And then at the same time, the, the British military are not sending uh, the, the RAF uh, squadrons that the French are... Well, and this played into Reynaud's fall because Reynaud had banked on the Anglo-French alliance and he kept saying, you know, Churchill says we're going to get help. And Churchill says we're the BEF, the second BEF and the RF are going to stay. And then without orders, they're simply leaving. 
And even Churchill wasn't sure what was going on there for a period of about 24 hours. Of course, defeatists like Vagon are saying, well, look, they can't be trusted. You know, they're, they're just running away. And, and, you know, they said they were going to stay and they're not. So, of course, that completely undermined Reynolds' position that, that nobody believed him anymore because, you know, the, the aspersions being cast on the Allied alliance seemed true at that point. And a lot of this was due to Brooks' unwillingness to carry out his mission. Again, he sh- this is a case of an individual who should have been wrong man for the wrong job. Uh, I point out in the book that basically the campaign's outcome was determined by the insubordination of three officers, Guderian, who never obeyed any orders he was getting, Vagon and, and Brooke. And all three of these, their insubordination affected the outcomes of the campaign. If Guderian had obeyed orders like he was told, he would have halted and given the Allies more time to, to organize. But he didn't. He never listened to halt orders. So he just kept plowing ahead. He did that again during Case Red. His troops were the first ones to make it to the Swiss border, and Hitler couldn't believe they were already there. You're already there? I told you to stop. It's too fast. You know? <laughs> but, uh, he's like, we're already reached the Swiss border. <laughs> I hadn't thought of, uh, of, the, uh, of that three officers disobeying orders. <laughs> it gives the result of the campaign. There's a lot of little interesting uh, tidbits that happen at the end of the campaign that just don't you just don't see like – so one of the French corps that was uh, near the Swiss border at the end, instead of surrendering to the Germans, they marched across the border into Switzerland. And this had uh, – the formation had about 40,000 troops of which I think around 20,000 were Polish. And there were 44 British soldiers in this group. And they were leftovers. The, the 51st Highland Division, when they were deployed to the Saar front, they had left a few troops behind – and these 44 soldiers, I never were able to find out which unit they were from. They went across the border into Switzerland, were interned, but then Switzerland in 1941 allowed most of these troops to leave via Vichy France, and then they made their way back to England, including some of the Polish troops too as well. And that's another one of those interesting little things that probably need some research for a magazine article or something is to find out who exactly were these troops and – I think there's an interesting story there, you know, about... Case Red's largely skipped over in the uh, general uh, historiography of the war. Why do you think it is? Why Why do we, you know, stop at Dunkirk? I say we, do we do... do uh, you know, I'm obviously speaking from a British perspective. Um, do Does the world stop at Dunkirk? Yes, I think it pretty much does. The, you know, so, yes, it is an Anglo-centric view to, to pursue the end at Dunkirk... Uh, because Dunkirk is heroic, it was a defeat, but it was heroic. The second BEF is second BEF is ignominious. Um, they're running for the boats and they're taking heavy losses. <laughs> and there's there's no glory. There's no defense of the perimeter like there is it at, at Dunkirk. You have the heroic BEF fighting on the perimeter, holding the line, so you know the troops can stand on the beaches and walk out, you know, uh, to the ships and the little boats and all that. And there's no, there's no little boats in, in, in uh, the evacuation of the second BEF. It's, it's a rather ignominious story. Um, so I think it's most countries tend to look over parts of history they don't like or find distasteful. And, you know, the rest of the English speaking world has taken the British lead on this. You know, <laughs> Churchill and, got his memoirs out quick. Yes. I mean, you know, the classic history of 1940, of course, is to lose a battle, Alistair Horn. It's excellent. It stops at 
Dunkirk. I mean, Alistair Horn, you know, basically, I think he mentions Case Red in about two pages, and he covers over it very, very quickly. It mostly is talking about the surrender. Um, incidents like the Lancaster are barely mentioned in most histories of the war. Well, of course, it, it, it was secret, the Lancaster, until the 70s, wasn't it? Oh, it's, there were many incidents such as that. I mean, uh, the... Um, I think it was the Queen Mary sank a British cruiser during the war. I think it was HMS Curacao, I believe, and uh, was rammed and sunk during the war with heavy loss of life. And uh, Churchill ordered that kept under wraps. There were several incidents during the war of heavy losses of life that were kept secret because it was thought it would hurt morale. The United States did somewhat the same with Slapped in Sands with uh, the whole uh, – the uh, sinking of the landing craft off uh, Slapped in Sands. The issuing of live ammunition. Yeah, the, uh, you had 800 American troops killed in one night, uh, you know, and just before D-Day. And, and that was generally uh, Operation Tiger, I think, was the name of that. And they that was um, kept very quiet for a long time. In fact, it wasn't until a few years ago that people realized exactly who those soldiers were. They were uh, engineers, all of them. And what was their wartime mission, their mission on D-Day, was to clear obstacles on beaches, specifically Omaha Beach. So the heavy American casualties on Omaha were in part due to the losses of this one German raid that killed the train engineers just, you know, a couple of weeks before the actual D-Day operation and and kind of threw a monkey wrench in the whole plan, you know, for that beach. And uh, these were the trained experts who were going to clear the obstacles and most of them were killed, you know, in training exercise. And, uh, Have the French been complicit in forgetting? Well, of course, World War II, and particularly 1940, is very complex in history. Now, there are a number of French language histories that are going a long way, and I freely admit to using them <laughs> as resources. And uh, I did a lot of research in French language sources. Uh, you have a number of authors that have been trying to correct the case and, and point out that the French, uh, particularly the French Air Force, fought very hard and suffered, I think, 45% losses during the campaign. You only had about 800 trained French pilots in May 1940, and roughly 45% of them were killed, captured, or wounded during the campaign. That's pretty heavy losses for six weeks. The French Air Force was fighting hard right up to the end, um, mounting sorties against the Germans and southern France even. But uh, the French, I think, have been trying, but it's very touchy. For a number of reasons, the Third Republic fell. It was replaced by a quasi-legitimate government, depending on your point of view, uh, the Vichy government, uh, which is seen as illegitimate by the Anglo-Americans, not so by all Frenchmen, uh, who view perhaps de Gaulle as illegitimate. You know, so you end up with that, who is the legitimate government of France during the war? And then after the war, there's a lot of ugly memories associated with collaboration, uh, and all these things. So the Second World War, 1940, I think is being studied intensively in France today, but it's also depends heavily on your point of view uh, in terms of where the emphasis lies and how it is regarded. Uh, I think younger French people are very interested in learning more about 1940, and they're learning something different than we're learning from it. And the history of France in the last hundred years is they get invaded relatively frequently and you know it usually doesn't turn out too well they are <laughs> cognizant of uh that they need to study this uh, it's not an academic exercise <laughs> bob that's great um i look forward to discussing your next book case case white this time next year um 
if you found that interesting, I can highly recommend you pick up a copy of Case Red, The Collapse of France by Robert Forsick. I think for most people, it will prove to be very thought-provoking on how they view the Battle of France. Uh, I'll put a link to the book on the website. Uh, if you've not already done so, you can find me on Facebook, www.podcast. Uh, I do post stuff in support of the latest episode, and it's great to hear your comments and thoughts. So that's it for this episode. All been well. Next time out, I'll be looking at the Luftwaffe in Northwest Europe. I'm Angus Wallace, and thanks for listening.